The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Are you a Stuff to Blow Your Mind fan? Are you a New Yorker? Do you plan to attend this year's New York Comic Con? If so, then you've got to check out our exclusive live show, NYCC Presents Stuff to Blow Your Mind Live Stranger Science. Join all three of us as we record a live podcast about the exciting science and tantalizing pseudoscience underlying the hit Netflix show Stranger Things. It all goes down Friday, October 6th from 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at the Hudson Mercantile in Manhattan. Stuff You Missed in History Class has a show right before us, so you can really double down. Learn more and buy your tickets today at NewYorkComicCon.com slash NYCC hyphen presents. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Hey, Robert, I remember when you first told me that you had a tattoo. Oh, yeah? It was when I first started the show. Uh-huh. Uh, we did an episode on stigmata, and I remember we were about halfway through the episode. Listeners who have listened that far back may remember this as well. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of casually dropped like, oh, yeah, I've got this tattoo that's stigmata related. And I, I thought you might be joking with me, but I just <laughs> kept going. And then later on, I found out it was true. It's true. Yeah, I do have a uh, a tattoo that is um, it's it's kind of an abstract thing. So it's it's definitely inspired by stigmatic imagery, uh, you know, regarding the the spear wound of Christ, especially in in classic paintings. But it's also kind of shape. It kind of resembles an eye. It has some yonic symbolism to it. So I, in getting it, I I wanted something 
that speaks about who I am and where I came from and, you know, and, and, and kind of serves as a, a, a hyper sickle, you know, yeah. to, 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 to wear on my body and within my body. Uh, and it's, uh, it's one that I, I had an artist. I had, I had like some ideas and I gave the ideas to an artist and he came up with a few different sketches. And then I picked one and then I said, that's the one. And then, uh, you know, waited until, uh, it was at the right time and I had that extra, you know, hundred or so bucks, uh, yeah. kicking around my, uh, my bank account to spend on it. Wow. What, how old were you when you got it? Oh, I was, I might have been in, in my, Early thirties or okay. maybe late twenties okay. at the time. Yeah. So it took a while. It was, I, I put a lot of thought into it thinking I'll probably only ever get one tattoo uh-huh. and I want it to, to be the exact right tattoo. Uh, how about yourself though? I have no tattoos. I, I, that's always surprising to people, but, um, especially because I, you know, I came from a punk metal subculture. I played music in that. And there's obviously a lot of ink flowing oh, yeah. over there. But almost all of my friends have got tattoos of some kind. My mom even tried to get me to get a tattoo with her when I was 16 years old. Oh, wow. My mom is one of these people who uh, she's like a an aging hippie now. But like when I was like 14 years old, she pierced her nose on her own. Like she was that <laughs> kind of person. She was like, oh, I'm going to have a nose ring now. And like. I just, I think maybe that's probably part of it is, you know, the like whole like idea of the rebelling against authority figures. Like mm-hmm. my authority figure was constantly like, let's get tattoos. Let's pierce my nose. And it just never. So uh, for, for you, through. it was kind of an act of rebellion to not do those things. It was for a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think there's other reasons now. And as we were doing research for this episode, I, I felt like it sort of helped codify for me why I, why I don't have tattoos. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, is while I don't have any myself, I feel more comfortable around people who have them, you know, yeah. like, like the subcultures that tend to have tattoos, like for instance, like music subcultures or, um, my wife takes part in roller derby. So if I go to a roller derby match, you know, everybody's got tattoos there. I just feel more at home. Yeah. It's, it, I think it's just maybe like they feel like they're my people because that's who I kind of grew up around maybe. But, uh, I also have something to add to this. I had a professor who was kind of a mentor of mine, uh, when I'm, I was an undergraduate and he said multiple times to classes that he considered tattoos as the first step toward fascism. Huh. Uh, and he would never unpack that if people asked him to. He would basically say, you need to figure it out for yourself. <laughs> uh, and it's important to remember this guy, his mentor was Hannah Arendt, who's mm-hmm. pretty famous. A lot of people know who she is, but she's the person who coined the term the banality of evil. She escaped from Europe during the Holocaust. So I think that was influential yeah. on him in terms of tattoos, thinking about the tattooing of people going to concentration camps. Yeah, well, as we'll, as we'll discuss in this episode, there are certain tattoo traditions where you see the use of penal tattoos, uh, tattoos that are supposed to serve as a form of punishment or as a mark to let other people know what you're about. Yeah. But basically it comes down to that kind of communication and all communication can, you know, can take various forms. It can be positive or negative or relatively mundane. Exactly. And I think, I think the beauty of tattoo traditions when they're when they're utilized, you know, for the positive and they're not used as a form of punishment or subjugation is that it does allow us to 
better control the the outward communication that we're engaging with uh, mm-hmm. with other humans. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I I'm I have notes about this later on in the episode, but I consider it to be a form of nonverbal communication that we have just sort of really taken control over. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll get into that later. But back to that professor, I understand the logic of his point. I think – I don't necessarily agree with it, but I think what he was trying to say is marking your body permanently is a step toward a single symbol or signifier, right, that you only encapsulate maybe that one thing. And, you know, he was from a very different generation than ours as well. And as we'll talk about, this is a, quite a generational thing in terms of the psychology surrounding tattoos. Uh-huh. But – um so, yeah, I think that's where he was coming from on it. It was an interesting perspective. Well, I do sometimes think of it in terms of, say, what if a, what if a government like the government in The Handmaid's Tale yeah. uh, took over? And then they're like, all right, we need to see everybody's tattoos so we'll know what you're about and you can't keep your secrets from us. Right. And, uh, and in my own case, I, you know, I guess I would just have to just really double down on, uh, the, on the Christ imagery of it and be like, yeah. no, it's just, it's just a spear wound. Nothing else to it. <laughs> uh, can I put my shirt back on now? <laughs> right. Yeah. But other people wouldn't be, you know, so lucky. They would have to explain their, you know, their, their Danzig skull, skull on their, uh, yeah. uh, their shoulders. I have friends who got tattoos when they were real young and then regretted it and later on ended up getting either tattoo removal like mm-hmm. with lasers or getting like blackout tattoos where they would just cover oh, yeah. their uh the the tattoos that they 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 didn't like they regretted having with just like blocks of black which actually looks kind of cool. Yeah, and you do see some cool uh, examples too of of people covering up a a tattoo that's either or augmenting it in a, in a way, you know, if it's a dated tattoo or tattoo that they just don't connect with anymore or yeah. it's, uh, or it, it is, you know, it's sustained damage over time. So there are a number of different ways one might uh, address it. Yeah. So today's episode, if you haven't guessed already, we're going to talk mainly about the psychology of tattoos. There's a previous episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind that Julie and Robert did mm-hmm. together that was about the science. So we will we will tap on that, but we're not going to go as deep as I believe you guys did in that episode. Yeah, likewise, there is a companion episode to that that we did about the future of tattoos that gets into all of these, you know, crazy like glowing tattoos and whatnot. Yeah. And so we're not going to touch on a lot of that. This episode is going to really, we're going to look a little bit at the basic science of it because I think that's important. Yeah. But... It's going to focus more on the psychology of it. So the, the, the mindset of the, the, the individual with the tattoo and then those who gaze upon our tattoos. Yeah. So if you are looking for something about tattoos that you, we didn't cover here, go to howstuffworks.com and, and just type tattoos into it and you're going to find just hundreds of pieces of information that are both in audio and text format. I mean, there's, there's literally, I, I think, over a hundred pieces. And likewise, as we go through this, I know that individuals out there with tattoos and tattoo stories and deep thoughts on their choices and tattoos, yeah. you, you may want to share your stories and or images of those tattoos with us. And uh, just stick around to the end of the show. We'll tell you how to get in touch with us. Uh, a great way to do that would be to either email us or to go on to the, uh, the Facebook group, the discussion module yep. for f- Stuff to Blow Your Mind, if you want to share it not only with us, but also with other listeners. Yeah, absolutely. There's a great community going on there. All right. So when did tattoos start? Like, when did people start doing this to themselves? Oh, man. So this is one of those uh, those questions where the answer is just lost, ultimately, in the myths of history. Mm-hmm. I You can only assume it, as soon as individuals were, uh, you know, learned that they could 
augment their bodies, that they could, you know, it probably began with accidental scratches and, yeah. uh, and mutilations and scars forming and then realizing that sometimes pigment uh, could wind up in there. And uh, eventually the, the, the earliest tattoo rituals began to emerge. Yeah. The earliest example we have is this guy who's referred to as the Iceman Mummy that was found in the Alps and he had tattoos. And as far as we can tell, he lived around 3,300 BCE. So that's pretty far back. Yeah, that, we're talking 5,200 years old or so, uh, also known as uh, Utsi the Iceman. I wonder who got to name him. Ah, well, we looked it up real quick, and it's uh, it's referring to the region in which the body was found. Uh, it's a region of the Alps near the Austrian-Italian border. Ah, okay. Yeah. Now, tattooing traditions, they, they pop up just about everywhere in human culture from uh, degrading penal tattoo traditions in China and uh, late antiquity Europe, the Mediterranean, uh, proud aesthetic uh, tattooing traditions uh, among the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Persians, and now just about, you know, anyone with an inclination for a bit of ink mm-hmm. uh, can it, can at least grab, you know, something off of the uh, the chart on the wall at their nearest tattoo parlor and and join the club. Yeah, absolutely. And we will when we get into the psychology of this, uh we're going to talk about the difference between how people choose what their tattoo is going to be, too. Yeah. Now, um, I, I want to have a, just to throw in something else about the ancient Egyptians because this is really, really fascinating and gets into some of the reasons we discuss later. But uh, we find these present on several female mummies dated to around 2000 BCE, exclusively female, perhaps royal courtesans, dancers, etc. And uh, ar- archaeologist uh, Joanne Fletcher theorizes that these tattoos had a, had some sort of a therapeutic purpose, and they functioned uh, as a sort of a permanent form of a protective amulet, kind of a magical spell that was intended to protect the individual during pregnancy and childbirth. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Okay. Huh. Well, given what we know about ancient Egyptians and mummification and how into body, I guess, sculpting they were, right? Mm -hmm. Or just like uh, just turning turning the body into something other, right? Yeah. It totally makes sense that tattoos would be a big part of that culture. And it's interesting when you think of language and symbolism as language and symbolism as a way to communicate meaning. Yeah. And to uh, and and to externalize meaning and then to take that and put it on the body and make it a part of yourself again. I think that's an interesting process. So if we're talking about modern day, here's some general tattoo stats for you. They have increased significantly in popularity in the last two decades. Almost one in five people across all age groups has a tattoo, and this is as of 2012. One in 10 people have two or more tattoos. Nearly 40% of young adults, that's people ages 18 to 25, have at least one. And only 15% of that age group had them in 1990. So you can see that there's been a big boom since, uh, since I guess you and I were in high school mm-hmm. up until present day. Uh, now despite this, there still seems to be discrimination and negative stigma toward people who have tattoos. And this subsequently leads to lower levels of employment for them. Don't forget, the book of Leviticus has a little bit of a role in this. And this is the passage from it. This is uh, Leviticus 19.28. You shall not make any gashes on your flesh for the dead or tattoo any marks upon you. But at the same time, there's a long history of Christian tattooing as well. Coptic Christians have marked their bodies with Christian symbols since the 8th 
century. Yeah, and of course you have to point out that if you start poking around in Leviticus, I mean, technically you can't do anything. So. Yeah, isn't that the one that uh, like talks about like um, pigskin? Like, you, I think you can't play football. <laughs> yeah, there, uh, it's it's definitely the, the part of the Bible that always brings to mind the bit on the Simpsons where the pastor points out to Ned Flanders that yeah, you know, technically we can't do anything. Ned. Right. <laughs> but here's the thing: in Western culture, tattoos. You know, honestly, they were originally associated with criminals and the sexually promiscuous. But other recent studies show these are the following stereotypes that people associate tattoos with. Academic struggle, broken homes, traumatic childhood, lack of church in their life, poor decision-making skills, and the susceptibility to peer pressure. But you have to ask yourself, with this rising popularity, is this changing? And I don't mean is – are, are these people changing from being those types of people to being other types of people? I mean the stigma. Is the mm-hmm. stigma changing? Are people realizing that that stigma is unfair? I think – and I can totally understand why if you're listening right now and you have a tattoo, you're probably thinking this is really – it's really unfair. But remember, human nonverbal communication is heavily built around appearance and the artifacts that we own and wear. Right. And these can alter judgment and interpretations, and these even lead to how much money people can earn. And here's a simple example, right? Think to how much time people spend agonizing over what their online avatar is going to be, right? Like, mm-hmm. like what, what, what is going to be that representation to people who may not ever even meet me in real life? It's not necessarily the best or the most logical practice, but it is inherently how human animals operate. It's how we communicate with each other on like a kind of primal basis. So, all right. Despite that, the market for tattoo consumption has largely been seen as bikers, prisoners, gang members, and other marginalized members of the working class. But now with this boom, it's also being seen as something that belongs to middle class artists or professionals. Yeah, and I would also throw in like – uh, you know, high level movie um, actors as well. I mean, how oh, many yeah. how many actors can you think of now that have at times a ridiculous amount of tattoos on their body that have to be covered over with makeup right. for their roles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Except for The Rock, that guy never covers his tattoos. It seems. Oh like. no, I think I've seen him. Have, oh really? You know, have him painted over. Yeah. I feel like every character he plays has the exact <laughs> same tattoos he has in real life. I- I'm glad that uh, that we're on actors and movies now because I think that is that is essential here. Yeah. Because. On one hand, yes, we, we all inevitably get engaged with individuals in our life that have tattoos and therefore know that just everyday folks have tattoos in many cases. However, we're also consuming all of this media. Right. And just think of the tattoos that you experience on television and in films and how many of those individuals end up falling into these categories. Like how right. many tattooed gang members have you encountered uh, on TV? How many like uh, tattooed bikers or stripper characters or, mm-hmm. you know, or somehow sexually dangerous individuals? All of these stereotypes are still very much in play in our media, uh, even if we're getting better at dealing with them in our daily life. And so you end up with, if not overt uh, bias, you have this implicit bias in dealing with uh, with tattoos. You know, you just encounter someone uh, with a tattoo and suddenly you're you're checking it based on something you saw in a prison movie. Yeah, yeah. I have a perfect example that I think might be like a uh, 
a nice like marker point in the 90s for when the tattoo culture started to become more prominent and mm-hmm. acceptable. I know you haven't watched The X-Files a lot, but you might know about this one. There's an episode where Scully gets a tattoo. Oh. And uh it but she gets ergot poisoning from the tattoo. Ooh, we yeah. have we have a, an episode about uh, about the ergot poisoning. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so the tattoo artist uh, for some reason is mixing ergot into the the ink mm-hmm. and the people who get tattoos from this person subsequently hallucinate and start doing crazy things. She is among them. Huh. Uh, but, you know, if you've seen the show before, Scully is like the consummate professional, very white collar FBI agent. She comes from a good family. She's very Christian. Right. But there's like a point in that series where she decides, you know, I need to I need to get a tattoo. She gets an Ouroboros tattoo, I believe. Oh, that's uh, a good one. And there's even some implication in the show that her tattoo somehow means that she she's immortal. If you're a real huh. hardcore X-Files fan, you'll know what I'm talking about. Where does she get it out of curiosity? It's like a – if I remember correctly, it's like a, a, a real like dingy tattoo show. Oh, yeah. Well, that's like another a, stigma. Right? Yeah. I think it's like a, a Russian tattoo guy and like the, the – you know, this like – horrible back room closet where he does tattoos. Well, where in her, where in her body? It's, I believe, I think it's on her back. Okay. Yeah. You know, uh, I think my version of this was probably watching the Tales from the Crypt episode back in the day where somebody gets a tattoo and it's like, it's a possessed tattoo and takes over them, which, which is a, you know, a none too subtle, uh, invoking of, uh, of tattoo stereotypes. Oh yeah, absolutely. This would actually make a a great trailer talk for us. Maybe maybe when this episode airs, we can do a trailer talk that week about, uh, evil tattoo movies or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah, I know they've been Because there's so many, like, uh, and I'm just thinking about like the Ray Bradbury uh, book of short stories, The Illustrated Man, mm-hmm. which is like basically the conceit is that somebody meets a tattooed man from like a freak show and each one of his tattoos kind of comes to life and tells one of the short stories. Uh, it's a pretty wonderful idea. And I think it's been taken. You know, there's like if I remember correctly, there's superheroes who have like tattoo powers like their tattoos come to life or something like a giant snake will jump off their body and fight <laughs> people for them or something. All right. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will we will breeze through how a tattoo actually comes to life on your body. And then we'll begin to get into uh, a lot of this psychological content that we've been uh, we've been hinting at. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. All right, we're back. So how does this whole thing work? I mean, essentially... We know, we understand there's a needle, there's ink, mm-hmm. it gets pushed into your flesh, it's a cut, the ink is underneath that, right? We actually did a Brain Stuff video episode all about the actual process and how the, the oh, yeah. machines work. Is this the one where Holly from uh, Stuff You Missed in History Class got the Star Wars tattoo? That's a different one, oh, okay. actually. Yeah, uh, this one's hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum from the Food Stuff uh, podcast, mm-hmm. but, but uh, it's mainly about how the actual machines work or what most people refer to as tattoo guns, but tattoo artists will tell you they prefer the term machines rather than guns. Yeah, and obviously we didn't always have the machines. Yeah. But but whether you're dealing with a a high-tech tattoo machine or you're dealing with more traditional uh, practices, I mean, the basic idea is still the same. You're taking tattoo ink and you're pushing it up into the uh, under the skin into mm-hmm. the skin and doing so in a way to f- to form shapes symbols etc it's kind of like a light bright but with <laughs> with you know li- little bits of ink and your skin yeah okay so traditionally tattoo ink was made out of anything from soot to metal salts and uh, as health uh, concerns cropped up uh, around the use of potentially toxic substances uh, as a pigment uh, natural vegetable based organic pigments have also come into fashion um 
And uh, there's actually, I don't want to talk too much about futuristic tattoo ideas, but there's a remarkable approach that's out there today that entails uh, gaining the carbon for black tattoos, because in, in many cases, you would get the black for the tattoos from just burnt wood. Sure. But you can also get it from burnt organic samples, such as hair or even uh, like the cremains of a loved one. Right. Like, yeah, I've heard of this. There's no reason you can't take that, make it into a, a tattoo ink and put it right into your body. Okay. So once you have the ink... Yeah, it's basically just as simple as injecting it under the skin, spelling, drawing something out as you see fit, um, you know, in the hands of a, of a tattoo artist. Mm-hmm. So the big question I think that a lot of people have, the big question I had for the longest um, was, well, once you get that in the skin, well, how does it stay there? Why does it stay there? Right. Because we've all heard these stats about, you know, the cell replacement in our bodies and you know, how long Every it takes. Every seven years, you're a different person. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, and we know that over time, tattoos can certainly degrade. Like, I remember seeing navel tattoos on old men in church yep. growing up. Yep. And it was like, maybe it was a mermaid once, maybe it was a military insignia, but it just turns to a green glob. Yeah, exactly. I worked with an old naval marine in a restaurant when I was in high school, and he was one of those guys mm-hmm. who just, he had like all these old tattoos he got from when he was, you know, on ships, but they, they were unrecognizable. They were just kind of like green blobs. Yeah. Okay. So here's how they do stick around and why they do kind of degrade after a while. Uh, the body replaces itself with a largely new set of cells every seven years to 10 years. And some of our most important parts are revamped uh, even more rapidly. Red blood cells live for about four months and uh, those uh, cells lining your acid-filled stomach, they're going to they're gonna be lucky to last five days. So don't never get a tattoo on the inside of your stomach. Okay. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> Meanwhile, the cells in your skeletal system, those are constantly regenerating. But a full tur- turnover there takes a full decade. Now, getting to the skin, though, where, they, where you're actually having the tattooing take place, your outer layer of skin, the epidermis, has a, has a pretty rough turnover as well. It's, a, it's the front line in the war against bodily infection, solar radiation, razor burn, uh, you know, skateboard wipeouts, you name it. Right. Uh, in this here, you'll find uh, skin rejuvenation takes place every two to four weeks. But when you look at a snazzy tattoo be it, uh, you know, a mermaid or, a, you know, a tribal a pattern, what, whatever, you're not looking at the epidermis. You're looking through the epidermis. The ink is in the dermis, which is the second layer of the skin. And the cells of the dermis are far more stable than the cells of the epidermis, so the tattoo ink stays in place with minor fading and dispersion over the course of a human lifetime. Okay. And as an added uh, bit of insight into why it's sticking around, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center dermatologist James B. Bridenstine pointed out in a 1999 Scientific American article that tattoos remain in the skin as well because the ink particles are too large to be ingested by the white blood cells that patrol the body and carry away foreign uh, elements. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Huh. I wonder, I mean, obviously, like, early man that was giving himself a tattoo right like this ice man that we talked about earlier didn't know that right? right but they must have somehow figured that out like i wonder who the poor soul was who had to like just keep going with a needle until it went as deep as it needed to go and then stay there <laughs> yeah I, I, it's one of those things where you just you ask so many questions about how you discover it and then how you sort of uh you know trial and error figure right. out the, the the right the ritual and the technique um it also makes you think, too, about human lifespans. Mm-hmm. Like, 
in a case where more violence or just the realities of uh, early life or cutting the human life uh, span short, then, uh, you know, the, the tattoo is going to stay in there unchanged for the duration. Yeah. Likewise, what would uh, what would an individual in the future who's living, you know, easily over a century, uh, what kind what is tattoo uh, uh, alteration going to be like then? Yeah, well, they're going to have to get touch ups. We're, yeah. we're, we're getting to that now, really. I mean, I have friends who've already gotten touch ups and they're only in middle age. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because if you get them in, uh, in high school or even earlier, mm-hmm. uh, then uh, yeah, you're going to have to have to do something as your body changes. All right, so those are the, the basics of, of how it works. And I, again, I feel like that's essential to just sort of nail that, get it out of the way. So we can start talking about some additional cultural practices and then the psychology that's wrapped up in those practices. All right, so we're going to jump around a little bit here, but let's like, let's throw like a grab bag of cultural practice examples out here related to tattooing. Okay. Well, uh, during the Crusades of the 11th and 12th century, you had uh, warriors that had tattoos on their body, the mark of the Jerusalem cross, so that they could ideally be given a, a, a Christian burial if they died in battle. Uh, and this is in line with, uh, re- really with uh, a, a lot of modern tat- uh, uh, medical tattoos, which we'll get to in a bit. You know, basically, there's information, vital information about who you are and what should be done to your body in the in the event of death or uh, in the event of, uh, of illness. Yeah, it's like an ID bracelet. Yeah. Now, uh, elsewhere in the world, I mean, we'll jump around a little bit and we can't possibly touch every tattooing tradition. So apologies if, you know, for any we left out here, but tattooing has been practiced in Japan, uh, since at least the fifth century BCE for beautification, for magic, to mark criminals. And certainly today, uh, you know, the tattoos have an interesting place in Japanese culture because the, the stigma of the Japanese Yakuza tattoo still lingers. And we've all seen images of like the full, uh, you know, body, uh, tattooing that, uh, would traditionally take place there. Right. That has, uh, you know, you know, images of, of dragons and, uh, you know, sort of violent imagery. Uh, and, and so that, that's, that's an area where you see probably more cultural stigma as a whole towards tattoos, but even there things continue to change. So that's one thing to keep in mind when we talk about changing attitudes towards tattoos, that yeah. even as acceptance grows, there's very much a topography to that acceptance, depending on where in the world we're, we're discussing uh, and what particular subcultures are in place, et cetera. This actually just dawned on me. Uh, for those of you outside the United States, you might not be aware of this, but there are some states, at least there used to be, where it's illegal to tattoo. Huh. Uh, and I guess, so I'm not originally from the South where we are right now, but are there any states around here where it's illegal? Um, you know, I don't know offhand. Okay. I, I mean, I always grew, I grew up in Tennessee. Yeah. And spent most of my additional time in Georgia and always saw tattoo parlors. So. so it's legal in New Hampshire and it wasn't legal in Massachusetts for a long time until like maybe a little over a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I lived in Massachusetts, when people needed to get tattoos, they would either drive north over the border to New Hampshire and there was just tattoo, there were tons <laughs> of tattoo places right over the border. Or they would go down to Rhode Island and hmm. get tattoos. Yeah. Be, but I, there's obviously tattoo studios all over Massachusetts now since it's become legal. But that was a thing for the recent, you know, history. Well, yeah, it makes sense. Even in the face of legality, you would have changing regulations depending on the state. Yeah. But let's go back a little further than that. In Polynesia in 1769, Captain Cook first observed that tattoos there on the locals had a social function. And what they do 
did was they displayed hierarchical and genealogical information about the owner. So what their place was within the class of their society, but then also what their family information was, who mm-hmm. their relatives were. Uh, here in the U.S., tattooing was the practice really of mainly subcultures until the 1960s, right? They were first seen on display in merchant seamen, uh, and then bikers seemed to be the next group that decorated their bodies. My father-in-law is one of these folks. He's a, he's a biker and has lots of tattoos that are related to riding his bike. But in the late 60s, uh, tattoo studios became more prominent. And they had a focus on formal training, sterilization, and the actual art of tattooing, right? So you get to 2000, okay? There is a study on demographics of tattoo adopters. And here's what they found is that the people who get tattoos do not differ from non-consumers of tattoos in the following areas. Socioeconomic origin, family stability, volunteering, alcohol use, college performance, or sorority fraternity affiliation, okay? The only distinguishing factors that they could find were that tattoo adopters tended to have a lower level of religiosity, a higher level of tobacco use, and, in fact, women were slightly more likely to have tattoos, Hmm. which surprised me. I thought that was interesting, especially uh, in the early 2000s. Again, though, here's another study. In 1998, they identified two levels of tattoo symbolism. This is, again, mainly in the West here. The first is the act of getting a tattoo. That all on its own is a symbolic act. But the second one is obviously the art and design choice, right? So interestingly, they found that design was most often chosen by popularity rather than internal symbolism. It seemed to be motivated by imitation and was caused by the desire to create a public self that signaled likeness to others. Huh. So this is interesting to me. This is, So we mentioned this earlier, right? This is sort of the difference between walking into a tattoo studio and picking something off the wall or doing what you did, where you've got a, a very specific idea, you've worked long and hard on the artistic project behind it, and then you bring that to the tattoo artist. Yeah, I guess it's the difference between sort of outward view, outward facing and inward facing. Mm-hmm. I guess mine's even more inward facing since it, it only, you know, I, I only show it off if I'm swimming or at the beach or something. Yeah. Or at a sauna. But, uh, but yeah, I guess a lot of people, it's, it's a matter of saying, I really like this sports team or I really like my country or I was a part of this military unit. And say, and, and so you choose the established emblem and mm-hmm. make it a part of your body. Yeah. To, to, to communicate that out to the world. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of variations in, in at least American tattoo culture. Now in 2004, yet another paper identified three types of people who adopt tattoos. The first are the what they refer to as the fashion aesthetic tattoo adopters. And these are people who are usually influenced by peer groups and fashion trends towards what their tattoos are. Then there is a group they call the committed but concealed tattoos. This sounds like you. They're extensively used as symbolic representations of personal life events. And then the last one is committed collectors. Now, these are people that reject the mainstream completely and develop their tattoos as a career. They get a lot of tattoos and it, they see it as a lifelong pursuit. So this would be like the, uh, oh, what's his name? The, the individual with the jigsaw pattern who I think was oh, on yeah. the X-Files. He right? was on yeah. the X-Files. Yeah. I forget what that guy's name is. Yeah. Um, but yes, you, you, exactly who you're talking about. The man who's just tattooed all over. Yeah. That, it was like a lizard man. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 He had like a forked tongue. Yeah. Yeah. 
now, in 2005, another paper identified that there are two different types of tattoos. There are tattoos as art, but then there are also tattoos as adornment. Now, what they mean here is something that's similar to jewelry and clothes, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't necessarily like – I put my T-shirt on this morning. It's just a brown T-shirt I'm wearing today, right? I didn't necessarily think of it as art. It is still artifactual communication you know, regardless of what I think about it. Some people are seeing this shirt and taking something from that that I can't really control and identifying meaning from it. So I think what they're getting around to is that some tattoos are less, quote, artistic than others and more intended as just being symbols. Yeah. And I guess there's you get into a lot of gray area trying to d- d- decide. You know, I which think is so. Which yeah. There. It's tough. Now, I like how you hit on the experience, too, because it's always the case when you if you show someone a tattoo or someone or someone showing it off. Generally, there there are two questions, right? Yeah. One it re- pertains to what it means or why you got it, and then they want to know did it hurt, what it feel like. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and and so it is. It is a, an experience as well as uh, an aesthetic, uh, purely aesthetic uh, adornment. So I uh, I always have stories of tattoos by other people since I don't have any, but I have two really close friends who got the same tattoo, uh, and they were very into like postmodern symbology at the time. And mm-hmm. so they like designed this thing themselves that was just this kind of honestly like a nonsense symbol. And it looked sort of like a maze and they got it. They both got it tattooed. And then they found afterwards that everyone was asking them what it meant. And so they got to the point where they, they, they got so sick of trying to explain the complexity of this like absurdist Dadaist tattoo to strangers essentially mm-hmm. that they would just lie and they would <laughs> say, Oh, uh, it's my friend's initials. He died in a car crash. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Well, you know, that's one way, one way to handle it. Yeah, yeah. And then it kind of becomes a different story each time. You yeah. Know, adjust it to the social setting. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, let's talk about why we get them. Let's get into some more of the psychology. Right. So the first psychological reason that's identified as why we choose to get tattoos is based on your identity. That makes sense, right? So they are usually personal traits that are materialistic. And they, as we mentioned earlier, they establish a group identity, such as a fraternity you belong to or a military group that you were in or gang membership or even sports teams. Yeah. And then, of course, there's a whole range of religious tattoos. Yeah. And some of those get into varying levels of magical and protective tattoos as well. So, for instance, you might have a crucifix on your body just because, uh, you, you know, you're say Christianity means something to you and you want you want that part of your identity to be visible. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like a, if you're putting that to in a visible place, right, you're announcing to the world, hey, I am a Christian. Are you a Christian, too? We have mm-hmm. something in common now. But then you don't necessarily think that putting the cross on your body is going to protect you. Right. But you could. Like there are just varying levels of uh, of magical thinking and and, uh, religiosity that come into play. Now, the sort of more mundane version of this, right, that I I always like to think of is, you know, when you go on vacation and you're like at a beach or something like that, or maybe you're at the airport and there's those touristy shirts, right? Like Mm -hmm. let's say you go to Miami and you're on your way back home and you buy a T-shirt that's like a dolphin jumping out of the waves and just says Miami with a big exclamation Mm -hmm. point on it, right? And you wear that out. What is that telling the world? You're 
telling people I've been to Miami, right? And it's yeah. essentially inviting other people who've been to Miami to say, hey, I've been to Miami too. Uh, what, what did you like about it? Or <laughs> I've never been to Miami. What's it like? Right. Well, and I, I think that comes into play, especially with individuals who have a lot of tattoos and have sleeves and, and whatnot. Yeah. Because, you know, when you just have one tattoo, you just, you, or, or even just a couple, you put a lot of thought into that one tattoo and it has to mean, to mean a lot or, or just represent one aspect of your life. But when you have like a whole sleeve, like each little bit, I've seen people sort of narrate their tattoos. Oh yeah. And yeah. so each little one, some of them, some of the little details might not mean anything that much. It's just, hey, I went somewhere with some friends and we got this to commemorate uh, what happened. Uh, but it becomes this uh, – it's like the illustrated man. Like mm-hmm. they overall tell the story of that individual's life. I had a buddy who recently got a sleeve here in Atlanta and he got the um, Yggdrasil, the, the tree of life from Norse mythology done oh, cool. as a full sleeve. Uh-huh. And then he had like aspects of the tree – Exactly as you're describing, like manifest parts of his life that were important to him. Mm-hmm. So it was, it's a pretty interesting one. Now, um, in, in all this, we're talking about identity. And uh, I, I found it summed up rather nicely in uh, an article titled The Psychology of Tattoos. It was published in San Diego Magazine. It was written by uh, Michael R. Mantell, Ph.D. And he pointed out that individuals with, with tattoos tend to have a stronger sense of identity. Now, you know, there, there are a lot of interpretations of that, and you know, certainly identity can range from identity within a group to identity outside of a group. But I think that is an important point to drive home, that yeah. I, identity and tattoos are, are, are closely intertwined. So on a, on a very basic level, you, you have your identity somehow wrapped up in this tattoo. A tattoo can serve to announce who you are to the world. Uh, you know, and, and this is an essential thing given our social species and the survival advantage associated with acceptance within a group. So it sends that message, I am this. I associate with this thing, idea, symbol, artist, or ideal enough to fuse it with my body. And, and, you know, it's not just a band shirt that you can take on and off. This is me. Right. Now, the next psychological reason why we seem to get tattoos has to do with transformation. That's right, because... um in, in advertising, one is putting the inner self or the ideal inner self on the outside uh, because normally all of those cool ideas and loves and wonders, they're, they're encased within you, but uh, but only with this normal human body to even hint at it. But the tattoo puts puts it on the outside. It beautifies the external with the internal. I found a, a, a wonderful quote here. This is from uh, Kirby Farrell, Ph.D. of the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. And she put it this way, uh, springing off a discussion of roaring sports mascots and screaming skulls as totems against impermanence and death. Right. She said, for one thing, that devouring maw is open to swallow more life, more food energy, but also as a tattoo, more vital attention. We're social animals. It's how we're built. Remember, the self is an event, not a thing. In the neurochemical conditions of deep sleep, the self disappears. We rely on social behavior, attention, to substantiate us and make us feel real. Exile, solitary confinement, and social death punished by starving the self for attention. You know, it's interesting. I also read something by Kirby Farrell. <laughs> it seems yeah. like we, we hit upon the same source. Yeah, in 2013, uh, she wrote for Psychology Today that tattoos modify our self-esteem as much as they modify our bodies. And she referred to them as a prosthetic that makes up for something that you feel to be missing or inadequate. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like thinking about it as like an artificial limb, right? Yeah. And here's another quote related to the one that you said. She 
said, by putting a skull on your skin, for instance, you and everyone who looks at you honors your control over death. The skull insists that you are not afraid of even your own death. If you emphasize teeth as in images of wolfish jaws and fangs, the signal is a threat display that should intimidate potential adversaries and pump up you, the beast's owner, turning your nervous system flight into courage and fight. Pretty interesting. Yeah. And, you know, this ties in nicely with uh, the example I want to bring up next for the transformative power of tattoos. Okay. So one of my favorite tattoo traditions that I've I've read about and seen footage of is uh, the so-called tattoo festival in the Buddhist temple Wat Bang Phra in central Thailand, about 31 miles or 50 kilometers west of Bangkok. So tattoos have a deep history in Thai culture, but the custom declined in the early modern period with uh, uh, with uh, the upper middle class, in particular, looking down on it. Uh, but traditions remain in, remained in rural areas and amid lower class urban youths. Uh, tattoos function in a way that closely aligned with the Thai emphasis, emphasis on protective amulets against the spirit world. Okay. But there are also traditional tattoos that aim to protect one against physical harm, even specific injuries, including stabbings or gunshots. And these are most popular among, you know, police, soldiers, and of course, criminals. Right. Among these magical tattoos, you have two types. There's gatha or magic spells, and these are are written in the ancient uh, Khmer script. And then you have representations of creatures with mythical powers. So they might be, you know, existing creatures like lions, panthers, or boars, or eagles, or it might be dragons, mm-hmm. or Hanuman, uh, the monkey king, uh, from, uh, of course, Hindu uh, iconography. Yeah. In either case, the tattoos are administered by a traditional tattoo master, either a layperson or a Buddhist monk. Uh, some tattoo artists of the lay variety, they claim to be possessed by, uh, generally it's like an Indian Hindu occultist, uh, and they enter into a trance-like state and they don a mask. Now, back to this tattoo festival uh, at uh, Wat Bang Phra. Uh, the tattoo festival sprang up in the wake of tattoo master and monk Long Fo Pon, who died in 2002, but they erected a bronze statue of him in his honor. So during the, this festival, uh, tattooed adherents gather, sometimes in the thousands, they pay respects to the statue, and they meditate. And then a few individuals will enter into a self-induced trance and begin to act in the manner of one of their bestial tattoos. Oh, interesting. So, okay. Yeah. So, so they're like manifesting their power animal. Exactly. So if they have a if they have a tiger on there, it might be, you know, a snarling kind of behavior. If they have Hanuman, then they might be doing uh, having movements that mimic the traditional dance movements of uh, of the Monkey King. Okay. But overall, they act you know, as if possessed or ensorcelled. Uh, uh, and this this happens in the morning until and it keeps going until around 9.30 a.m. when the monks lead a Buddhist prayer. Uh, some adherents continue to, to frenzy at that point until the monks spray them down with a garden hose. Uh, and then everyone disperses and some except for those who stick around to receive tattoos from the monks. Interesting. There's a great article about this uh, that I, I read to, to get these details. This is from 2008, titled Spirit Possession and Tourism at uh, Thai Festivals, a Comparative Study by Eric Cohen. And he pointed out that this is one of those events where if you're an, a, a Western tourist and you show up, you're going to be tolerated as an interloper. <laughs> right. But but, it, but you know, you're not going to be encouraged to attend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, but there are individuals who do seek it out you know, just because of the, the spectacle of the thing. 
But I think the, the whole festival is a testament to the overt and or implied power that we give tattoos. Not only are they ideas, images, and symbols to protect your body, but the, those ideas become one with the body. And, uh, and, and, you know, maybe, and maybe we become one with the subject of the tattoo. Yeah, I think there's something to be said transformatively about the use of tattoos as a form of self-control, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. in fact, there's a lens that you can look at tattoos as sort of pro-social regulated acts of communication rather than this idea that seems so pervasive, especially in early psychology of that, you know, people who get tattoos are just pathologically insistent on self-injury or yeah. something like that. Now, for for people who have a transformative aspect with it, tattoos are a form of controlled coping mechanisms, right? And actually, this is an interesting stat. Women are more likely than men to choose tattoo symbols as an expression of self-identity through uniqueness and independence. So again, so it seems to be more than just the act of getting the tattoo in this in these cases the transformative aspect is choosing what the symbol reflects right and how yeah. that's going to change you well you know this makes me think of uh, of the use of tattoos to cover up or in some cases sort of adorn scars mm-hmm. especially surgical scars yeah and this is of course very prevalent in the, the case of uh, women who receive uh, uh, mastectomies yeah. yeah like you see these these uh, these images of of women who have taken that that scar taken the absence and transformed it into into something you know meaningful and symbolic uh and in milder cases you also see like a purely medical tattoo where a nipple, um, you know, or, or some other um, feature of the skin is repaired with tattooing, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, but I think those, those transformative uh, moments are the most uh, most potent. Yeah, and so the third psychological factor that we get to here, I think, is connected to the transformative nature, and this is remembrance, right? Mm-hmm. So we've actually talked about this before in episodes we've done about palimpsests and anthropodermic bibliopegy, but in contemporary America, the meanings of Tattoos can actually be possessions that reflect your experiences, your memories, your feelings, or your values. It sort of looks at the body as a living record of your life history, right? And especially like when we're talking about people who see their tattooing as a career, that their body is becoming like a, a permanent record of, of what's happened to them in their life. Yeah, you see people getting the names of their children or the names of their loved one, their mother, you know, various family members right. engraved on their body to say like these people are important to me and they are a part of me. My brother-in-law has uh, his last name tattooed on his leg in old Old English. Mm-hmm. And whenever you ask him about it, he says, ah, it's just so I can remember what my last name is. <laughs> <laughs> but it's obviously supposed to be, you know, remembrance of family and the family is important to him. Nice. Um, so here's a couple studies that are related to the remembrance aspect. One study from 2011 used content analysis on student essays and online blogs that were about casual tattooing adoption. And what they found was that the motivations manifesting through the meaning of these tattoos are, first of all, the act of getting the tattoo, second, the design of the tattoo image, but then the motivation for people not to get tattoos were actually anchored in the individual's public persona, so how uh, they felt like their self was perceived by other people, but also their private persona, which really to them meant their authentic and real self. So there's a lot of, you know, tattoos are really like creating a, a a lot of 
dissonance inside, uh, you know, your identity and cognition, essentially, yeah. right? So this is like, you know, it may seem like, oh, this doesn't make sense for a science podcast. Why are you guys talking about tattoos? But there's a lot of stuff going on inside our heads when we're making these decisions, you know? Now, choosing one, that also creates a negotiation between these two aspects of ourselves. A substantial number of the respondents that they talked to mentioned getting tattoos in a phase of their life when they quoted wanted to rebel against conformity, right? So they found that this is usually characterized by less attention to the meaning of the design. So for instance, you go to a tattoo parlor and you're like, I'll get that Tasmanian devil. Uh, you get that tattooed and then five years later you're like, oh, I really wish I didn't do that. Uh, <laughs> it must have been because I was rebelling or something, right? This is a common narrative that you hear. Yeah, I think a lot, a lot of uh, tattoo parlors I've heard have a sort of wall of shame. For some of the the, in their opinions, least wise tattoos. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, you know, it's to usually too like people who come in at three in the morning, like completely drunk, and uh, you know, it, I think a responsible tattoo studio usually yeah, won't yeah. give you a tattoo in those situations. But, but there are plenty of those stories out there, uh-huh. right? you know, with varying degrees of validity. Yeah, absolutely. So those though who get their tattoos for unique creative art tend to search for a feeling of pride in their tattoo and something that if it's visible is going to be praised, right? Some of them get these tattoos out of a desire for conformity that comes from social pressure or influence. Okay, I want to put a pin on that, right? Remember I talked about my mentor at the beginning and his whole thing about Mm -hmm. how a tattoo is the first step towards fascism. Well, there I can see what he's talking about, right? Like the idea that some people are getting tattoos out of a desire to conform to something. Yeah. I think he saw that. I don't think he was aware of all of these broad variety of psychological reasons why people got them, but that was the one he was honing in on there, right? With the conformity aspect, him linking it to fascism. Well, you know, but uh, it it also comes back to just the social nature of of humans. And like conformity is is kind of what we do. It it depends on which group you're trying to conform to. Yeah, I don't, again, I don't think I necessarily agree with him. I understand where he's coming from. Mm -hmm. I think it's a broader, more complicated thing than that, as is often the case. Now, there's one more study I'd like to mention here. This is from 2015, and they found that even though there is independence in the choice and purchase of tattoo art, there are usually both external and internal influences that are related to whether somebody regretted acquiring a tattoo, right? Now, that's either your, you know, essentially your personal identity for your regret or people saying to you, geez, why did you get that Tasmanian devil? Or why did you (laughs) – my favorite one. Some buddies of mine used to always joke about this because this is a very common tattoo. You'd say like – Hey, dude, where'd you get that tattoo with a, it's a skull with like a fire for hair, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like people would go, Oh, maybe I really shouldn't have gotten that skull with fire for hair. I don't know. But of course it depends how it's dictated. I mean, I can imagine oh, yeah, a very absolutely. beautiful fire for hair skull, but. Oh man, if you're a Ghost Rider fan, that's right there for you. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's take a uh, one more break. And when we come back, we're going to get into the psychology of how others interpret tattoos. Uh, and again, this is going to be, uh, uh, an issue where it's going to vary a lot depending on you know exactly what the culture is and what the tattoo happens to be. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Remember when you first saw the potential, and then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. All right, we're back. So now we're talking about the psychology of tattoos, not from the point of view of why we get them, but how other people tend to interpret them. There's been a lot of research on this. Yeah, and anyone out there with tattoos, you can I'm sure you can relate. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I bet. Now, let's go back to early psychology. I mentioned this in passing earlier. It really seemed to get tattooing wrong, I think. It described tattooing as exhibitionism and masochism. And this led many psychologists to describe people who got tattoos as uninhibited and impulsive and more likely to exhibit psychopathology. Hmm. Uh, they were also described as signs of emotional immaturity and neurotic conflicts. And by the 1990s, there was an association of manliness and sexuality connected to tattoos, which huh. I thought was interesting as well. I, I guess I can sort of picture that. Um because that was right around the time when, like, the people around me were starting to get tattooed. Yeah, and it gets into media representations too, right? Like the tough biker, the tough prisoner, uh, or say, like, the, the tough wrestler with a tattoo, or the mm -hmm. tough athlete with a tattoo, right? Yeah. So if you go way back to 1967, though, there's an interesting paper by 
Eisnick and Eisnick. I'm assuming they're either siblings or maybe they're married. Uh, but they proposed an idea called stimulation theory. And the idea here is related to extroversion and introversion of people and the idea that they're products of our cortical arousal inside our brains. And essentially this influences our response to external stimuli. So for instance, if you have a high level of cortical arousal, then you are more sensitive to external stimuli. That's me. Like, I'm way more sensitive to external stimuli than most people. And, uh, I especially like if there's, if I'm in a, like a big room with a lot of people being loud or something like that, like it, it, it seems to affect me more, right? Mm. Uh, in, in many ways. Okay. But introverts seem to be more sensitive to stimuli and seek to avoid it. So seems like I'm an introvert. In 1993, though, Another study came along. This is Copes and Forsyth, and they tried to determine whether the extroversion levels of people with tattoos lent support to the idea of stimulation theory. Okay, so how how much cortical stimulation or arousal you were actually getting was related to your uh, basically the amount of tattoos that you were getting. And they found that, yes, actually the more tattoos that somebody gets, the higher their level of extroversion. Hmm. So they tend to be extroverts who are these sort of like careerist tattoo uh, consumers. Now, research does show that there are personality differences between those who are tattooed and those who are not. But there are a few studies that investigate whether these show positive indicators for people with tattoos. So, for instance, extroverts, however, they have lower levels of cortical arousal. They tend to seek external stimuli through social arousal. So one way to do that would be to get tattoos. It's an instant conversation starter. Right, exactly. Yeah. If you're the type of person who loves talking to the clerk at the grocery store when you're in line, mm-hmm. get a tattoo, right? Easy way to start a conversation. Me, I go immediately to the robot area and just want to swipe <laughs> my goods through there and get out of the store. The research, however, seems to be a little mixed about whether there's negative stereotypes that are associated with tattoos and whether those negative stereotypes are accurate. So in 2007, there was a German study that found that those with tattoos scored higher on a scale of extroversion, but lower on a scale of neuroticism. So this seems to dispel the myth of neuroticism being associated with tattoos. Another 2012 study, this was done in Austria and Germany, concluded that those with tattoos have a higher level of need for the following things, uniqueness, sensation-seeking, and thrill and adventure-seeking. But it also found that these people have lower levels of self-esteem They attend religious services less and are generally less educated than individuals who don't have tattoos. So that seems to feed into that stereotype. Yeah. But let's keep in mind, this is like a small study in one country in Europe. It's not – I don't think this necessarily encapsulates the entire broad tattoo culture. Yeah, and and of course, just going through that list, you can think of any number of exceptions, I think, in in people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. So studies like this one and another one I'm about to talk about, they tend to look at three of what are referred to as the big five personality dimensions that are the best predictors of successful job performance. And this relates to the whole idea of like – uh, that there is discrimination against people with tattoos when uh, you're going through the hiring process. These uh, indicators are neuroticism, 
extroversion and conscientiousness. This, this strikes me as very bizarre just from my, my subjective point of view because every job I've ever had, I don't, I can't imagine that tattoos have been like a, a, a topic that has re- like dispelled somebody from getting a job at those places. But also, I'm, I, I'm a creative person. I tend to work in creative places like this one. And, you know, most people who, who work here have tattoos. Yeah. Well, you know, I think back at my own work experience and say, so I was in journalism for a while. Yeah. And, and especially when you're dealing with small town newspapers. Yeah. I can definitely see it being a factor. Right. Yeah. They wouldn't want you to have like a skull tattoo tattooed over your face if you're going out to like interview the local sheriff. Well, I remember a guy interviewing for the, the the head editor position at this paper uh, that I worked for and he had a tattoo of an eyeball ring on his finger. That's it. Uh, well, I mean, that's all that we could see. Yeah. But it was never, you know, discussed. There were some other things that came up that I think disqualified him from the position. But, okay. but I know that when people saw that tattoo, they were already thinking, like, this guy's going to be the face of the company right. dealing with people. Everybody's going to see that eyeball tattoo. Yeah. Like, what is, what does that mean for this small town newspaper? Um, and I'm not saying that's, that's right, but. Right. You know. Well, it gets back to what I was saying earlier, that human beings judge one another based on artifactual communication. It's yeah. just unfortunately the way we work. Uh, another study related to this about the whole job thing comes from 2016, just last year. It looked at the differences using those same five personality traits. Uh, those that are considered critical to successful employees in the workforce. And the hypothesis of this study was that people with tattoos would actually show higher levels of conscientiousness and extroversion and lower levels of neuroticism. And what they actually found was that there weren't a lot of statistical changes between the two other than a very slight trend toward extroversion, okay? So despite all that stuff about simulation theory and cortical arousal, you know, some of these studies don't seem to support that. The reading on this last study, though, was that tattooed individuals may be better employees than was previously believed, right? Especially since extroversion has been found to be a critical indicator of people who are successful in their job performance. So this really calls into question how those who are judging people with tattoos about whether or not they would be good employees, mm-hmm. uh, how they how they consider that and, and what they think that actually means versus what it seems to actually say about personality traits. Plus, it would just seem to me that if an individual has a lot of tattoos, I mean, those things aren't cheap. Uh, like right. They, they, they're yeah. going to they work successful. harder. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I had a buddy. You'll like this because you're a tool fan. I had a buddy who uh, didn't have a lot of money and he spent like everything in his bank account to get that same tattoo that uh, Maynard James Keenan oh, has. the spinal tattoo? Yeah, yeah, he had his entire spinal cord traced uh, and he did it in like one go too and it was like, I remember seeing him afterwards and he was like like weak from the loss of blood <laughs> and like wanting to eat, you know, like a lot of food at that time but he was the kind of guy who had essentially resigned himself like I'm I'm never going to work in like an office setting or anything like that. So I might as well get tattoos on my neck or on my hands or um, whatever, you know. Well, of course, the the final frontier of uh, of tattooing and the ultimate test of the social acceptance of tattooing is is probably the facial tattoo or any near sure. face tattoo, you know, also bringing in neck tattoos. Right. Yeah. 
Now, I have two areas I want to touch on here, but the first has to do with probably the most famous facial tattoo custom, the uh, Ta Moko of the Maori people. Uh, these were quite prominent in pre-colonial Maori culture, uh, but there's uh, been a big resurgence since the 1990s. But for the most part, even tattoo-accepting cultures, you know, they're not going to be that accepting of neck and facial tattoos. Now, among the Maori, it's a rite of passage. It's, it's a lot deeper than mere aesthetics. Maori tattoo traditionally does not involve the use of needles. Rather, the Maori use knives and chisels made from shark's teeth, uh, sharpened bone, or sharp stone. And the ink, too, is pretty fascinating. The black was made from burnt wood. That's where they would get their carbon. Uh, lighter pigments came from fungus-infected caterpillars or burnt gum. Wow, okay. Now, men traditionally had full facial tattoos. Uh, women had chin, lip, and nostrils. But if you had them, it was a sign of high social rank. Again, bringing in that communication. Uh, and you already uh, you already touched on uh, the hereditary information that is often present in those facial tattoos. Right. Uh, the way it would work is the left side is generally the father's side and the right side of the mother's. Oh, so okay. if only one side of the family had social rank, you might only have a, a half facial tattoo. That's really interesting. Okay, I didn't know that. So there's, you know, so there's meaning when you look at it. You know, there's information to be imparted. People might look at a Maori tattoo and they think, oh, well, it's just some fearsome face meant to intimidate somebody. But there's a lot more to it. Uh, I looked to an older source on this from a 2004 article titled Wearing Moko, Maori Facial Marking in Today's World from the University of Waikato in New Zealand. And they pointed out that a number of strides have been made in acceptance of Moko uh, among the Maori by non-Maori people. Uh, but that despite increased understanding of the tattoos and establishment of this as a, you know, a positive cultural marking, there's still prejudice uh, as there always was. Now, on the extreme, the authors point out uh, there are those who pass judgments on economic status and or mental health when they see such a tattoo. With others, there's this you know weird mix of acceptance and stereotyping. Here's a particularly telling quote uh, from, a, from a Maori with uh, the traditional tattoos from the article. Quote, I get a lot of good response from Pakia, that's those uh, non-Maori people. A lot of them go to me and say, gee, that's beautiful, well-balanced, and there's not too much. That's what they're saying. Some moko, you can't see the person. You can't see the face. But with mine, you can see my face. You can see who I am. Hmm. And I think that see who I am thing is rather telling because it's, it's kind of a misunderstanding of what the tattoo is. What really most tattoos are about. Yeah. Uh, about. You, you're communicating who you are. Yeah, it's about identity. Yeah. Now, that being said, it is important to note that a, a facial tattoo um, – I mean, it is on your face. It's on the, the facial communication array that you use to communicate with other people. Mm -hmm. You're making eye contact with people. You're talking with people. You have this range of uh, facial expressions and micro expressions that you're utilizing to communicate with someone. So you have to ask, well, to what extent does a tattoo like that interfere or augment your just basic communication? Well, I found a, a really cool study. This is a 2015 study from the University of Arizona titled Evidence of Negative Implicit Attitudes Towards Individuals with a Tattoo Near the Face. So it wasn't a full-blown facial tattoo, but, uh, you know, they're looking at near facial tattoos. So the, w the way it was always established for me, even with my friends who were getting tattoos as we were growing up, mm -hmm. was if you chose to get a tattoo on or near your face, you were essentially looking at – either working outdoors for the rest of your life or working in the back part of a restaurant. Hmm. Yeah, and I, th I think that stigma and still I remains. I yeah. always felt like that was unfair, obviously, yeah. but 
So the, what's the research? Okay, so what they did is that they, they looked into this through a, three different studies, okay, three different experiments. And they found that test subjects tended to hold negative associations towards people with near facial tattoos. And that it wasn't an issue of asymmetrical tattoo interrupting visual processing. So that was, that was one concern. The idea like, oh, well, you, if you have a neck tattoo on one side of your neck, is that just throwing off people's just perception of your face? Sure. And they they said that that it's a facial recognition. Yeah, right? and mm-hmm. they said that it did not seem to be the case. Um, I wonder how that works on facial recognition software. Uh, there there are some studies out there about it. We didn't have time to go into it for this episode, but yeah. there are some studies that look at at uh, facial recognition software and tattoos. That's important to remember as Big Brother takes us over. We yeah. should all get face tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> now they did find that a couple of things did help the uh, individual's perception and and help positive perception of near facial tattoos, either higher intelligence on the part of the perceiver or, quote, low external motivation to respond with prejudice. So these perceivers exhibited lower implicit prejudice. It also uh, helped if the perceiver themselves had a tattoo and uh, the exact nature of that, the tattoo near the face mattered. So is it tribal? Is it a, quote, unquote, positive image? Do you remember we talked about this uh, maybe a year or so ago on the show? I think I can't remember if you've read this or not. The the comic book series King City by Brandon Graham. No, I haven't read that one. Uh, he the, that guy, Brandon Graham, has a tattoo of an elephant on his neck. That's pretty prominent. But so I th- I would think in this situation, like the elephant is a fairly non-threatening kind of you know, thing that doesn't seem to necessarily represent any kind of uh, violent or aggressive uh, identity, right? Yeah, like that would be an example of a positive or at least a mundane tattoo. Yeah. Likewise, a heart or, you know, the the name of someone's child, like that would, I feel like that would also be yeah. uh, a positive or mundane use. However, if it's a tattoo of, say, um, you know, like a dagger cutting your throat, right. or uh, was it Richard Roundtree that supposedly had one that was a dotted line and it said cut on the dotted line. Is that right? I've never heard that. I believe that is the case. Oh, okay. Uh, but if that's true. Or a true, skull with fire for hair. Right. If they, yeah. <laughs> Those kind of tattoos would be more likely to be perceived as uh, as negative by the individual. Right. And then you have all these issues of masculinity and femininity as well, which we touched on as well. So, again, you can't just look at it in complete isolation. But even still, the negative trends persisted in the experiments, perhaps due in large part to negative portrayals of individuals with facial tattoos or near facial tattoos in media, even if you yourself have a number of tattoos oh, yeah. on your body. I, I, I want to say this is related to the episode we did a couple of years ago about Halloween and enclosed cognition. Yeah. I want to say that Halloween costumes of like being a criminal or a prisoner come with like fake tattoos for your face. Yeah. I seem to remember that. Yeah, that, that sounds right. You know, I think there, there are other examples too, where there'll be like uh ninja costumes that come with a dragon tattoo. Right. Know? Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, it certainly, when you're de- t- dealing with Halloween costumes, you're dealing with enclosed cognition. You're, you're, you're changing the way you think about yourself and how others will interpret you. Uh, with the way that you're dressed, and uh, and tattoos are in large part another version of that. If you're interested in that episode, uh, and Halloween's coming up, so uh, you go back into our archives at stufftoblowyourmind.com. You can find that one. Yeah, and I'll try to link to it on the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com as well. So we would love to hear from our listeners who have tattoos, and I'm sure many of you have strong opinions about the research we just presented. Uh, you know, do you agree with what it says? 
about why people get tattoos? Do you agree with what it says about how people interpret tattoos? Let us know. You can get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. That's right. And again, that uh, discussion module group on Facebook, that's a great way if you want to share your tattoo and your tattoo story with other listeners and uh, and your host here. But if you want to get in touch with us directly, just shoot us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.